0: Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite. Thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we. I mean, we work full-time, and this is this is a full-time gig on top of it, and we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet-talked the folks with SpeechTherapyPD.com, and as a thank-you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free podcast subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear, and that person will get a free Podcore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, All Things Ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go. But once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools, to adults, to ethics, so be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the numbers twenty. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon.
1: Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers, spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for .1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels
0: and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, so today I get to take a page out of the fabulous Miss Erin's book, and I get to be the third wheel. Y'all, our Erin has laughed and said she is the perfect third wheel and Christian and I and her best gal pal Sam and her fabulous husband Michael can 100% attest to that. But today I'm going to practice what I have learned from her and be the third wheel to her and the delightfully passionate and equally talented Allison Smith MS CCC SLP. Also known as the EI.teletherapy on Instagram. And I just learned that you don't have to say the at symbol in front of Instagram handles, so I'm now slightly cooler. And y'all, we're gonna talk all things evidence-based practice for pediatric feeding disorders. And I am thrilled about today's episode because this is what we do best. We have nerdy geek sheet questions, we chase down the answers, and then share it with joy and laughter unparalleled. So ladies, huzzah. Also, um, super big thank you to Allison for being so patient while we had technical difficulties getting this one going as dog. Because y'all, she should have been named Kat. She somehow managed to pee on my husband and the laptop that we were about to record on. So um, that's a fabulous behind the scenes um, factoid. And don't worry, we cleaned the laptop off prior to recording. So, Allison, thank you for joining
3: Aaron and I on Crazy Train this morning. Huzzah! (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I've told both you and Michelle, or you and Aaron before that. I literally got into feeding because of this podcast. So the fact that I'm going to be on an episode is just kind of mind-blowing and also terrifying. Um, (laughs) So thank you for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. And um, I I hope it helps clinicians out there like I was back in my CF in early early years when I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Okay. Well, then
0: talk to us, tell us a little bit about you. You're from, I know that you're from Texas, but like how did you get into speech therapy? Give us the backstory.
3: Yeah. So I was born and raised Texan. Um, I originally wanted to go into special education and learned very quickly that me versus like 25 kids was not um, a good fit. So I, (laughs) I wanted something that was more one-on-one where I felt like I could kind of tailor the needs of the child to what I was doing. Um, So I, was told about speech pathology, but was always told I would never be patient enough to work with um, kids who had really severe medical needs. But I was like, you know what, like I can do it. I love science. I love language. Um, I love helping. So I gave it a shot. And, and here we are. I started in private practice. That was really big on, you know, tongue thrusts and chewy tubes. And I just Never understood why we were doing that because, you know, my grad school had always told me, and you say it too, like non-speech oral motor exercises do not help swallowing in speech. Yes, um, <laughs> for the people in the back, throw away the plastic
0: <laughs> tubes.
3: Yes. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't feel supported. So I switched to ECI, which is Early Childhood Intervention in Texas. Uh, I guess EI for everyone else. Um, and there I just, you know, I was kind of on my own island. So I went kind of what from one extreme to the other where I had absolutely zero support, no one to mentor me. So one day, Teresa Richard, who does the Swallow Your Pride podcast, she said, you are not a tree, you can move. And so I quit my job and I moved halfway across the state and Texas is really big. So that's kind of a big deal um, to work at a children's hospital for 13 weeks and essentially force the NICU and inpatient SLP to train me and everything she knew about uh, feeding and swallowing and kind of did my own research on the side. Um, and now I'm back at early intervention. And yeah, that's that's how I got here today, I guess. <laughs> I love
0: this so much. I love how brazen and bold you are. That's beautiful. Okay, so then I'm gonna sit back and um, ask the questions and um, hit, 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 and try to behave myself. How about this? <laughs> okay, so um, what exactly is evidence based practice, and how do we make sure that we
3: are doing it correctly? Dun dun dun. <laughs> Yeah, that's the question of the century, right? Um, So just per ASHA, evidence-based practice is the integration, and I feel like there needs to be an emphasis on that word, integration, of clinical expertise, evidence, and the client-patient caregiver perspectives. I feel like sometimes the problem that we run into is we just go to that clinical expertise, side of the triangle and we don't consider the other two sides. At least that's what I've been seeing a lot on social media and just from my colleagues that we are really just thinking about our own experiences and oh well I saw my supervisor use chewy tubes so now I use chewy tubes and that's my opinion and that's what I'm gonna do even though there isn't any uh, external evidence for that and probably not much internal evidence. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the basis of what evidence-based practice is. Um, and so we need to really consider all three components so that we can make an informed decision on if we're providing the best quality of care for our clients. You know, our code of ethics says we should do no harm. Um, And I feel like sometimes we're using modalities that may actually be causing harm, but we're not um, kind of taking that into account. And we're just kind of staying in our comfort zone, maybe, Um, rather than kind of spending the time to dig in, reach out to other professionals. Um, I always say that speech pathology does not like begin and end with your session with a child. I do much more work outside of my time with kids. And I'm knowing you 2 I'm pretty sure that's the case for you guys as well. Um, So yeah. We just
2: talked about that. Goose is like, why do you guys always talk about work all the time? And we're like, well, Goose, when you love what you do, like you just want to talk about it. That's what we do. He's like, well, and he just mimics us.
0: My favorite is when my kids are like, um, "They need a second opinion." <laughs> I'm like, ha, ha. "Out of the mouths of babes." Okay, all right. So I have, I have to say, I'm old enough that I and contrary enough that it's given me the ability to to ask the why, but and to lean in, and I. Um, also a beautiful thing happens when you hit your late thirties, you care less what other people think of you. And it's this weird thing after giving birth and having your body wrecked by tiny humans and everybody sees all the bits and pieces, like your, your guard kind of goes down. Like that's delightfully disgusting. But I say that because I got to witness Aaron present evidence to the NICU when she was working in Virginia. About why they didn't need um, to feed infants on it was on CPAP, right? Mm -hmm. And but wait, I'll let you tell that story and I'll be quiet. But like it was just it was really awesome how she had to present the evidence to fight just what you said to do the integration. So yeah. Well,
2: I mean that was a a whole experience of kind of having to. I mean, it's very hard when you're new and you're young and you're seeing things that you don't necessarily agree with or feel are ethical, and then you bring evidence, but sometimes the evidence isn't, not taken, but sometimes, like you said, there are other factors that people put more emphasis on. And it's, I think with the all parts of the evidence-based triangle, what I find at least is there will people will acknowledge the other parts and that they play a part, but their clinical expertise seems to hold so much more weight. And in some instances it can, but at the same time you need to put more weight on where the evidence is. And and I had a moment last week where I in our, th- our therapy tip, I was talking about pausing and I was like, I think the reason why I have such a hard time with that is because I want to feel like I always have an answer or I'm always doing something or I'm always giving this patient value in our sessions or these families answers. But sometimes it's okay to say, I don't really know. And I'm going to find out for you. I don't know. I have a few kids right now that are just really hard cases to crack. And I'm like, this is what I'm thinking, but I'm going to make sure that we have the best plan of care because there are things I could do with them that I know are treatment strategies that could maybe work, but part of my gut is telling me this isn't right for this kid. And so It is taking us a little bit longer to get to the appropriate treatment plan for them. But I'm just trying to be honest with this family and also taking into account what they need because my clinical experience with how I've treated other patients might not necessarily fit for them.
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's also good to point out that the, the weights on the triangle, it's going to be very rare that they're always going to be equal, that it's just going to happen to come out to be equal. So there is probably going to be one side that is more heavily weighted and that's okay. It's just, you know, saying that we are taking in all three sides and making it a collaboration um, to come to our treatment plan. And I, I love that therapy tip, Erin, because I think that's Something we don't do. We don't say, "Hey, I don't have the answers. Let me go find out." You know, I, f- this is a different rant, but I sometimes feel like speech pathology is like, "Hey, this is a really good career if you want to have kids one day, and it's really flexible, and you could do part time eventually." So, and play with the laminator. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like the
0: people get into. I had this conversation with a uh, a faculty person this week and they were like, I really think that some of these students think we can just play with laminators and colored pencils and I'm like, well that's what they see on a lot of
3: social media so you're yeah. not wrong <laughs> Well and to kind of really tie that into evidence-based practice those products on teachers pay teachers or whatever who knows if they if those are evidence-based, and so kind of what are their resources that they're or references that you're, they're using to make those products like yeah they're super cute and maybe engaging but like what strategies are you using um but I don't deal with language because ew. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love you so much. Yes, somebody was talking about higher level syntactical something or another, and I was like, you lost me at higher level, friends. So like, I went downhill from there. Okay, all right. So then, how? All right, Can we want...
2: answer that question. No, I feel like there's a no. Lot there's more. The,
0: we okay. we got it. We got to pull that apart. Okay, okay so. One of the things that I circle back around to is we are charged with finding the evidence, right? But like, y'all, I am drowning most of the time in my workload. So I, I am trying to, in my new hat, take care of students and simultaneously still run a business and a eval and treat and set up a pediatric feeding clinic, Right, so I'm I'm still doing all the things. It's it's hard to find evidence. The easy part is to scroll through social media at the end of the day. However, I know good and all the fun four letter words that that is not appropriate. So where how do we tease out what is evidence based and where to go for evidence based?
3: Yeah, so I think it's tricky whenever, you know, for example, I don't work in like a big hospital system. So I don't have access to all the fancy databases. Um, But there are still some things that we can use and kind of I'm just going to go through kind of the steps of evidence based practice. And this is all on Ash's website. But I just don't think we use it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that now. And then we can um, discuss kind of where we find the evidence if that's okay.
0: Perfect. And can you you tell us what webpage? Do you have the webpage link for it? Y-
3: yes. I, can I send that to you or do you want me to say it out loud right now? Um, both. Cool. Okay. It's like, uh-uh. okay, let's find it. Honestly. I d- okay, here we go. Asha.org uh, slash EBP. Perfect. Thank you. Makes sense, right? <laughs> it's the tricky one right
0: there, that one is.
3: going <laughs> to be easy to remember. <laughs> All right, so step one is you have to frame your clinical question. And they recommend using the PICO framework, which I really enjoy because I'm a nerd. So um, it stands for population, intervention, comparison, and outcome. And I feel like that's just a fancy way to say um, – how we form a question. So for example, it could be an infants with dysphagia is gel mix or cereal best for thickening breast milk. Um, So that's kind of an example of how you would use that framework. And I feel like in the beginning of your quest, you might not have that comparison piece if you're brand new to let's say thickeners. So you might just say um, an infants with dysphagia, what thickeners are um, appropriate? And then after you dig into the research, then you'll figure out, oh, well, in infants, I can use gel Mix. I can use rice. I can use oatmeal. And then you can kind of narrow down your questions as you go. And then step two is gather the evidence. And this is kind of what we were talking about earlier. So how do we get access to evidence? Um, and I feel like this is when a lot of people... Um, kind of have beef with ASHA is, you know, they say, oh, well, you want us to have the evidence, but we're not given access to a lot of it. Um, but I I would argue that ASHA does a pretty decent job. Um, I love ASHA's evidence maps. Um, they kind of summarize all the research for you and take basically all the work out. <laughs> now, they, they don't cover every single topic. Um, you still have to do a little bit of work, which I know is frightening. But. Um, but there's um, that resource. Um, there's PubMed, which I, I use. Allison, I got to put two cents in here because yeah, that
0: pull the trigger there for me. Uh, oh, <laughs> um, No, in, in the most beautiful way. You guys, I have heard way too many people say, well, Asha needs to do this or I pay Asha to do this. And then we complain okay. about the monies. Y'all, I highly encourage you to volunteer and apply for the ASHA leadership development program. Once you get into there, or once you get into your state association and you volunteer there, you're going to see where your dollars go and everything that goes on behind the scenes. And I guarantee you, you will no longer gripe about those factors. Also, We cannot be silo clinicians. We cannot stay in only speech pathology literature when treating a pediatric feeding disorder. You have to dig deep. And I heard where you went with the PubMed and pull resources into professional practice. And ASHA has a whole page on interprofessional practice, but we've got to get into the other disciplines too.
3: Sorry. That was was a great, that was a great trigger. No, that's a really great point. One of my... um favorite researchers is Daniel Duncan, who's a doctor, and he does a lot of research on thickeners, which is really appropriate for the early intervention population. But some of his research doesn't even have an SLP as an author, but it's really good research and it's really well done. Um, And so that you hit the nail on the head with that. But another good option for finding research for people who feel like they don't have enough time is the informed SLP. Um, They kind of, again, summarize all the evidence for you. They have a team. They have a pediatric feeding and swallowing specialist on their team. Um, So that's another kind of good resource. And one more is Unpaywall. Um, I don't know if you all have heard of this one, but it's a kind of an extension on your Google Chrome browser. And if you click on a um, research title, it'll automatically direct you to a free version of it. And I'm all for like supporting researchers. That's important. Um, but, you know, if you can find it for free, that's always good because those run like $40 an article. Um, so, yeah, and- I have
2: my friends still in grad school to find them for me.
3: Yes. <laughs> well, and Aaron, I know you've sent me an article or two. So yeah. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's Aaron's. Aaron's super cool job. It, um,
0: it's a nonprofit, so they like hook them up with all of these great research articles. And like,
3: please know that I'm also like, wait, I need that one too. <laughs> that yeah, I love sensitive. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, ResearchGate is another. I think that's what it's called. Um, is another option. You make a profile, and you can message like Joan Arvidson is on there, Catherine Shaker, and I'm like, hey, can I have a, a copy of your article? And then they just send it to you. Like, neat, that is really cool. Um, So, yeah, all right. So, I think this is the biggest part. So, step two is gathering the evidence. But what if you can't find evidence? What should we do? Um, So, the first thing is maybe reconsider the question you're asking. You know, if I search chewy tubes and I don't find anything about chewy tubes then maybe there's no evidence on chewy tubes and maybe I should search for something different. Um, Another option you could do is consider research from other populations that are related. Um, So, I always try to keep up with what's happening in the adult population as well, just because although pediatrics does have some evidence, sometimes we do have to kind of extrapolate from the adult adult population. Um, it's really hard to get IRB approval for pediatrics because we can't intentionally withhold a treatment from kiddos if if we think it might benefit them. Um, another thing would be find an alternative treatment. And then the last option is you could, and I think this is where people would be like, see, I'm right. You can review and analyze your internal evidence that you've collected to find patterns that may guide your clinical decision. Um, so I think that's one where it can get kind of sticky because I wouldn't trust my internal evidence to um, be well documented enough probably to base important clinical, new clinical decisions off of. Um, So I want to know what kind of data these people are taking that they are so confident in. I don't know, data collection is an area that I need to grow in for sure. Um, But I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts. So what what if you can't find evidence? What what do you do? I think what's cool,
2: I mean, I've been lucky enough to be able to use other people's internal evidence as well. Mm-hmm. So like your mentors being careful with that, I think, um, because, and I use it more to just bounce ideas off of people. Cause maybe they can help, like you said, reconsider what question you're asking or, more so guide you in another direction as opposed to them just saying, well, I had a kid just like this and this is exactly what I did. Like, I think when someone tells you that you should still then go and question it, question it all like when I was Michelle's student, she always, always said, make sure you're questioning everything. Even me, because I'm a firm believer that if you, if you cannot tell a family or a physician or, another therapist, why you're doing something, then you really should not be doing it. And if you can't understand it, I think I've spoken with some people who use certain treatment strategies. And when you ask them why, or anatomically how it's impacting their oral motor skills, or why they think this causes this, they haven't really been able to explain it to me in some instances. And in those cases, it's hard for me to understand why that's what they've chosen to do.
3: Yeah, definitely. Like if you're stretching something on their face, but you can't even name the muscle that you're stretching, I don't understand how that's going to help the child. And if we're not following it up with something functional, what is the point? Um, so yeah, I think I love asking why. I think I annoy people, but you know, we get the answers. So <laughs> Or we don't get the answers, which is more frightening then we have to go find them. I, I, my biggest complaint
0: with our profession is that I see a huge disconnect between, um, between a, 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 a huge disconnect amongst or the ability of our profession to effectively collaborate with the medical world. Okay. And I say that knowing the ramifications of that sentence. Right. But we feel, and and I don't know if it's just because of the personality type of SLPs, we feel an immense pressure that we have to know the answer right then and there. And we feel an immense pressure that it has to be a speech resolution. And Aaron, Aaron has said like, we don't own the tongue. We don't own a tongue, whether or not. And tongue tie we cannot just arbitrarily say to cut that because the tongue is not just ours right but here's the catch that evidence-based triangle part of that um internal evidence my internal evidence i have experiences here but i also need to seek out and get I think we need another point on that triangle. I think maybe it should honestly be a square or a cube because we need to take into account that interdisciplinary approach because the kids that we see, I mean, even if you're taking a child with an expressive language disorder, right? How many of those children have a neurogenic-based etiology for that language disorder, right? Right. So maybe they had an anoxic event in their youth. Maybe they had a methamphetamine exposure um, in utero and you may be able to present the best language therapy out there, but then you go finally get a scan with a neurologist and find out that like, oh, they're missing parts of their brain or there's damage or you see an old infarct. Well, I had one kid that we found out like after I'd been in for a while that the child had dysgenesis of the corpus callosum, like he had a dis disfigured corpus callosum that's going to drastically change my plan of care and shift the delivery that I am and, and my recommendations. Right. And my long-term prognosis and outcome. But that's what I see our as a, a huge hindrance to our evidence-based practice is that we're not willing to make the referrals to actually figure out what's going on. That was a long winded answer. I'm supposed to be the third wheel and quiet. I,
3: apologize. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I love that Because actually, I think it's like code of ethics, one B or something. We are actually required per our code of ethics to make referrals. It is in there in black and white. And we don't, I do it, but I feel like as a group, we don't do it. And I we are not, I mean, yeah, we don't own the tongue, but we also don't own the brain. We don't own the airway. We don't own the GI system. And so we can't affect, like, I always say we can't be a feeding team of one. Like, it's not possible. Feeding encompasses so many different systems, all the systems. And we we can't just focus on what's going in. Like, it's just not, it's not possible. Um so yeah, that's some um, an area we need to grow in for sure. And I think like
2: what I love about what we do is like I kind of view us as like the cherry on top almost because <laughs> I love that because there's we but we get to see so like I don't know maybe there's a better there's a definitely a better analogy because like you can see the whole ice cream sundae when you eat it but like um there we get to see how all these different systems work together to allow a child to either communicate or eat. And because of that, we are able to kind of make, have hypotheses or see these signs and symptoms and send these kids to where they need to go to dig deeper into these various systems. But, And I think that's beautiful because without us, I don't think that those might be found because so many of these signs and symptoms can be indicative of multiple different etiologies or you could get them to different specialists. And let's face it, like not all the specialists all talk together. And sometimes we end up working as like the, we help put the puzzle pieces together And, but the problem is not like what I, not the problem, I think it's great, but what I think people need to understand, especially when they're young and they're going into pediatric dysphagia and feeding is that you have to know about those other systems. You cannot just go in and know what we learn in grad school or might not even learn in grad school about pediatric feeding and what we can help because you have to be able to rule things out and understand everything else, or you're just not going to, I just don't think you can give the best care. And that's hard to then take the time to learn about all these GI symptoms and allergies and work with ENT and medical terms. Oh god. Like, it's exhausting, but but I I think you have to. And that's if you want to go into if you want to be the best feeding therapist that you can be, I think you have to take the time to do that. And that might also be just having a conversation with the ENT and like working with them consistently they, you might not find doctors that are as open to that, but you will find other ones. I just had a conversation with an ENT the other day and he word vomited at me the same way I word vomited at him and was so kind and was explaining things to me, not in a condescending way, but just like giving me more information. And that added to my evidence-based triangle.
0: Yeah. I Okay. Did either one of you guys just buy like flashcards and drill medical term flashcards. Cause I did that after grad school. Cause I was like, I'm a speech pathologist. I'm a clinical fellow. I know all the things. And then I got out and I was like, I don't know diddly squat. And then I got like medical term flashcards and just practice because I was at a hospital and didn't have a clue. I mean, I remember the first time somebody was like, Oh, well they have, what was it? Um, uh, renal failure due to something or another. And I was like, what's renal failure. And the doctor looked at me and I was like, I'm not going to ask that doctor questions anymore. (laughs) I don't do flashcards,
2: but then when you're in the NICU, you realize there's all these, um, acronyms for everything of prematurity. Like you, there's just a whole other
0: acronym list. Oh my God. Okay. Wait. All right. I gotta be the timekeeper. I gotta be the bad cop. Okay. We've drilled this. So bottom line folks, maybe don't trust everything you see on social media. Maybe trust, maybe remember the source of the stuff that you see on social media, because people create pages to maybe sell products, maybe sell opinions, um, or to hear back from themselves. So, um, we also have two more steps.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Step three. And I, I, I feel like I keep saying this is the most important, but I think this actually might be the most important is that we have to assess the evidence. So how can we tell if a research article is good or not? So we need to take into account the study design. Is it a single case study? Because that might not be as impactful as a randomized control trial where you have, you know, two separate groups, everything is really planned out and controlled. One group gets the treatment, one group doesn't, or there's multiple groups. Um, is it a longitudinal study? Is it a retrospective study where we're looking back? Um, so just kind of considering the level of um, validity, I guess, of the study um, to see if it's good. I feel like, well, another thing that I've, I think maybe if we can't, if we have time to dis- discuss is kind of how many research studies are necessary to start trumping your clinical opinion, so if you no, have I a, know that. I like, tell me that <laughs> I, I, well, I would like to know too, because I think that's, what's really kind of making me scratch my head lately. It's like, okay, you're saying you have this clinical opinion, you'll have this internal evidence, but we have seven really well-designed research studies right here, describing something completely opposite of what you're promoting. So at what point do we start to take that over a random expert on social media. You know what I mean? Emotional maturity. (laughs) maturity. No, truthfully, I think that's, I really think
0: it drives down to that. When it is hard to have, it is hard to grow in today's age with respect to emotional maturity when we live in a society that this looks cute, this feels good, do this, right? So then when you're presented with the bare facts of a well-constructed and excellently executed um, research study to then take that information in. But that correlates to the individual clinician's emotional intelligence and if they are ready to take that next step up. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But if they're not ready for it, then we can't force them to grow, which is.
2: There's also culture. I mean, like Allison, you were saying where you were for your work culture, work culture, I think plays a huge part in that because I think you get into these situations or um, work teams where peer pressure, there's peer pressure, I think is huge. And you end up, feeling like if you speak up that I hate to say that there are like there's I've just been a part of negative environments where when I have spoken up about disagreeing or having different clinical opinions it was met with wasn't met very well
0: yeah I remember I remember those conversations afterwards but you're right I mean that is if you're in it if you are blessed to work in a situation where by presenting functional evidence and a great research article, it's met with, Oh my gosh, can you send that to me? Mm -hmm. I mean, like we just said that like, Oh, Aaron sends us great research articles. Like how cool is that? Right. But, um, that's
2: what it's like where I am now. I mean, we have journal articles every week and we talk about evidence and we bounce ideas off of each other. And if someone has it, if we're doing something and someone has a different experience or just read about something like we talk about it and we discuss it and there's trust. But I think that can also play a part.
0: Yes. But then like Allison said, she changed her whole life to chase that. And y'all, that's what you have to do. I mean, you may not have to move across Texas, which is basically like moving across a whole different country because Texas, you could fit like several countries in, but like, but that is, that is the ultimate leap of faith is how cool is that? Yeah.
3: Well, and like for those who are on pediatric dysphagia island right now, you don't have to be a part of a work environment that does like, Aaron seems very blessed to be in a work environment that has, you know, weekly journal meetings, but you don't have to have that to be able to grow, like reach out to people that on social media, get different perspectives. Like I've met these two wonderful ladies through social media, which just blows my mind. Um, But it's so great because you really can build those bridges. Reach out to SLPs in your community. I um, always attend the swallow studies, well, pre-COVID, at my local children's hospital. But that's built so many awesome bridges because now I can talk to them about my tough cases. And it just gives a different perspective on the hospital side. Um, So there's a way to grow even if you're all alone or it seems like you're all alone. Mm -hmm. You really aren't.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
3: Mm. You mentored, you mentored one of my students and
0: how cool is that? Like, I was like, Oh, you're in Texas. Oh, well, you need to talk to this amazing EI Texas lady. And, um, and, but like, that's y'all, that's what we do for each other. you set your, you set a coworker's crown straight and not the crown that you color with, but the one that's on your head. And I use that as the same for word for the same for both. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Okay, we have one more?
0: Is yeah, a so just
3: number? to touch yeah. on kind of assessing the evidence. Um, so you want to do the, you know, consider the research design. And then we've already talked about it, but looking for biases. So are there any conflict of interest with the authors? So is the first author about this? I I don't know why I keep thinking of tongue tie, probably because that's just on my mind. Um, If there is this one case study about tongue tie that's showing that, yes, we should cut the tongue ties, but if that first author has written five different books on tongue tie and teaches a CEU course about tongue tie, maybe just take that into consideration. There's also publication bias where um, only data that is deemed I always call it like sexy research, like a big, like groundbreaking um, study. Those are the things that are going to get published. So things that have like a null or a negative finding um, may not actually be getting published. So... Just another thing to consider. All right, step four, the biggie, make your clinical decision. ASHA is all about the acronym. So (laughs) they use the acronym DECIDE here. So the D stands for defining your clinical question and going through steps one through three. We've already done that. E is extrapolate the clinically applicable information from the external evidence. So that is the evidence that's been published, nothing that you've done yourself. And again, um, like I said earlier, I follow a lot of what's happening in the adult population, because there are some instances where we just don't have that research in the pediatric. Um, for example, like the pillars of aspiration pneumonia. Um, so kind of, okay, well, it makes sense that oral care is important. I should be doing that with my pediatric clients. Um, I incorporate the needs and perspectives of your client and ca- or their caregiver. So if a mom um, really wants to breastfeed, like how can we support her with that rather than just saying, oh, breastfeeding's not an option. Sorry. Um, D, develop an assessment or treatment plan by bringing together the three components, which we've touched on quite a bit. And then E, um, evaluate your clinical decision. So I think this one's really important is that you're supposed to use a trial period. So you've done all this research, you've found your uh, treatment plan, but we're not stuck with that treatment plan forever. If you try it for four to six weeks, or however long you deem necessary, and no changes happen, maybe go back to step one and see if there's something else that you could be doing. Um, And I think this is where that do it.
0: (laughs) Aaron and I are both like, Oh, my God, because do you know how many times like, how many of you have been the second or third or fourth or fifth speech pathologist and all the predecessors did the exact same thing. And then you walk in and you're like, well, we got to skin this cat different, but like that reassessing what you're doing and the absence of change. Right.
2: And to the point when you talk about like the part of evidence-based triangle with like caregiver and family, like having those conversations with those families that have worked with other therapists, what were you working on before? What worked? Why do you think it didn't work? Why would, did this not work for your family? What, you know, that can help your evidence-based, tra- like that can help your treatment plan to know what didn't work with them in the past too.
3: Yes, definitely. I always ask, you know, <laughs> getting medical records is always an adventure in early intervention, um, but I, I track them down. So, But until I'm able to track them down, I always ask like, Hey, what have what have you already tried? What did you how did you feel about that? Did it work? Did it not work? Um, I did a feeding eval yesterday and I was like, oh boy, well, it makes sense why that didn't work. Um, let's try something different. And then you could just see the look of relief on this mom's face of like, wow, we tried this vibrating stick for four months and nothing changed. And I'm like, Yeah, well. I can see why (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm not going to use any vibrating sticks. So um, we're going to, we're going to do something completely different. And I explained exactly what I was doing, exactly why I'm going to be doing that. I asked her, Hey, do, do any of these pieces not work for you or for your family? And we were able to create a plan together. And I feel like sometimes we talk at our patients and we tell them, hey, you're going to do this. Hey, you need to do this three times a day, 10 times a day, whatever. And we don't collaborate with them. Even though our patients might not be able to make decisions for themselves, we need to include the parent in the decision-making process um, and kind of give them the pros and cons of, of all these different treatment options and let them be an active participant. Yes. Ugh
0: yes we're just pondering we're, we're just both of us are lost in our thoughts over here we're like total silence i'm thinking how many times have yeah have we incurred, <sighs> y'all a child may not verbally be able to give you feedback but their actions their behaviors their um Uh, Their facial expressions, their nonverbal communication is in itself the feedback that you need. So if you're going at a kid with a vibrating stick and the kid is arching and turning away or turning their head and crying, have somebody come at you with a vibrating stick towards your face and tell me how well that turns out for you. So, um, yeah. Wow. We got, we got preachy (laughs)
2: like feeding is. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and like OTs and PTs, I feel like can work on whether they're working on like my roommate, um in hands. So she'll have the patients do certain activities in the session to work on grabbing them in a certain position or making this certain movement with their hand. And they may not love the activity or what they're having to do, but they're going to go home and they're going to have to reach for that toy or they're going to like, go for something. But some of our kids, like they're just not going to go home and eat. And so if we make it a negative experience in the session, like
0: it, even if they
2: do it in the session, they're probably, I mean, if they're, you know, a kid that's feeding tube dependent and we're trying to increase oral feeds, but you make them miserable in the session around food. Yeah. They're probably not going to go home and eat. But so I think we also have that challenge where like, we can't just, I mean, we're not just going to shove food in kids' mouths. You have to be very careful about how you handle it. It's that.
3: consensual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a huge psychological component to meal times and feeding. You know, it happens so many times a day. And if, you know, a quarter of your day is spent in a high chair, strapped in, miserable crying, um, the next time you're strapped into a high chair, it's probably, you're probably your arousal levels are going to increase from the get-go. And that just doesn't facilitate good eating. Um,
2: well, I also, and this is kind of random, but like, I've been on a big kick with a lot of my friends talking about like, um, diet culture and just the, our own experiences with food just from a, not children with special needs, but you think about your experiences with families and your experience as a child around food. And I, I'm more cautious about a lot of my patients and their awareness because you can then facilitate not just a pediatric feeding disorder, but like, and what it would more be called like an eating disorder from like, not, but that psychological standpoint in the future, if like, you're not careful and they're probably at a much higher, like cognitive level to understand the stress that the family has on food with trying to get them to eat and and different things like that so i think that's always important to keep in mind
0: and and it's amazing what kids pick up on because i'm watching goose well, you know, he's seven now, right? So we'll make comments. Well, you can, you don't, we don't purchase that. We don't buy that because he'll we'll walk down the soda aisle. We don't have, we've never had soda in our house. And he goes, well, we can have junk food at grandma's house because grandma keeps the good junk food. But like, he's already associating those health choices and, and the language around the food. Um, at, 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 to me, a really young age, but he has heard us talking about healthy food choices since he was a kid, like a little guy and our pediatric patients that even though they may be nonverbal, they're still picking up on that.
3: Definitely. And I always, you know, parents are doing what they feel necessary. If you have a kid that's not eating, that's really stressful. And I, I, I'm not a parent, but I, I've i seen parents who are such awesome, great people And they've been shamed by pediatricians or GI doctors, whoever, to, oh, you're not trying hard enough to feed your kid. That's why they're not eating. So then we kind of get into force feeding. And then, of course, as speech therapists, we're like, ah, why would you do that? That's horrible. But they're doing what they've been told is correct. And they're just trying to help their kids. So I, I feel like I've also you know, over the last year, just trying to shift my, my mindset of like, what trauma is this parent experiencing also to, you know, present these behaviors that doesn't make them a bad parent. They're just doing what they feel like is correct.
0: There's, there's growing evidence to support PTSD for parents of special needs children. And, and that is, we've got to do an episode on that. We, we, we need to cover that in and of its own right. But I say that because, um, That's where within the framework of our evidence-based triangle, when we're taking into consideration the patient caregiver aspect, that's where we need to pull in psych. The child may not need psych and counseling or psychiatric help, but the family may need it because if that piece of the triangle, which I really think should be a cube, um, is crumbling, then... We can't, then they're not at a place for healing to actually implement the mm-hmm. evidence based um, treatments that we want to share and put in place because they don't have their, is it the Maslow scale of hierarchy, hierarchy? Yeah, they're not at that level where they need to be. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes. Well, And Michelle, I think that that third triangle piece, the clinical opinion, I think it also includes expert opinions as well. So I feel like that could encompass, you know, if I don't personally have um, experience with this, like I can go and seek out an expert opinion and that can fill in that, that side of the triangle. So I, I feel like that could, you know, go off of what you're talking about. Um, yeah, So but I have one question for you guys, if I'm allowed to interview y'all. Oh God, <laughs> is a yeah. thing? yes. <laughs> so if something is Asha approved, does that make it evidence based? Um, no. <laughs> no. Wait,
2: ta- was I talking? Who was I talking to about? I literally just had this conversation with a coworker Really? About how it is. I think people do assume that if they can get CEU credit for it, that it must be completely evidence-based. And I think that leads to people being sometimes misinformed.
0: Uh, um, my internal five-year-old Theodore Boubert Dawson answer is to stop my feet and yell from a mountaintop. No. However, that's not the professional response. Um, so my concern is, is that I don't, I don't know the approval process for each individual CEU, right? But every single course that's submitted, we have to um, submit um, measurable objectives. We have to include who we're interviewing. And the problem is um, some of the CEUs are not vetted some of the coursework is not appropriately vetted. Um, and then for a litany of breakdowns, right? I mean, a litany of breakdowns. I would love if that was closed up. I would love, I really truthfully, but then how do you, but that's a Pandora's box or trying to put it back into Pandora's box. But, um,
3: yeah. Yeah. So I actually just went through the process of getting, and I think Michelle, we had a brief like phone conversation about it. But um yeah, I they sent me the application. I put how many hours I wanted it to be for. I submitted like my time ordered agenda and my learning objectives, sent my money and here we are. I'm an ASHA CE provider. They didn't, I offered, I was like, oh, do you need to see my PowerPoint slides, my reference list? Um, do you need to see that I'm capable of teaching this course? And they're like, no, we're good. It's like, interesting, but I'm glad I went through that experience. Cause I mean, I know that my material is evidence-based because I, I'm so passionate about that, but it's, made me really look at ceu courses a lot differently not that i'm not going to take them obviously but just with a more critical eye and i think that's really important for us to question the instructors why are you using this why are you recommending this even if you're considered an expert um, looking up the references yourself you know you can add 500 articles to your reference list, but that doesn't mean you use any of them. Um, mm-hmm. So that is something that I have said at the beginning of all of my long
0: lectures, fact check me, trust, but verify That's it's, it's a great line, but trust the person, but you do need to then turn around and verify that the um, materials that they're presenting is accurate and that the references are cited if you okay, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. When you get on Facebook and you join a pediatric feeding group and you're on the Facebook forums, um, uh, and to go back to circle around what we said, people that have created those Facebook groups, I mean, they're trying to sell you a product they're trying to, um, not all of them, but a fair few of them are right. So, when you pose a question to some of those, some of those forums, some of those groups, you're going to get a biased opinion based off of those that are in there. So you want true answers, then that's where you join your ASHA. That's where you pay for your SIGs and you post your commentary on the ASHA threads because the greats in our field will answer your questions on there for free. And it is verified. And the, and ASHA has like if you post a question on the Sig thirteens, um the um sig thirteen review boards will actually follow the and verify that the answer that's delivered is accurate. Like Aaron got to have um Dr. James Coral as um a professor. I mean Oh no, nice. <laughs> Like, would you just call him? Dr. J? D- oh, <laughs> it it's a long day. <laughs> Dr. J. D- yeah, yeah. Yes. But, like, okay. What I knew you, what, you, what mean? you meant, Michelle. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't pee on the laptop. I'm fighting for life today. Okay. But, like, he, but they answer that information so that you know that it's accurate. But if you ask a question and somebody can't give you, a random and a randomized control trial, and they can only give you a single subject or a single case study, and they're basing an entire. I mean, that's that's worrisome, right? That's rar. yeah. Rawr.
3: Catherine Shaker is really active on Sig Thirteen, which is great for infant feeding, but she is so giving with her time. Um, I'm sure you've seen her responses on there, but she'll do like five paragraphs um and it's just really awesome to kind of you know get that expert opinion from the source and an expert who has research to back it up um so that's, that's how when Aaron and I saw Joan Arvidson talking live and like we like super
0: cheeseballed and got our pictures with her afterwards and like she was just so so willing to share and like, do you have a question about a case? I'll answer it right now. And this is after she had stood up and talked for like three hours. And we're just like, oh, I mean, but again, she also has, it's one of those individuals that has participated in the research and presented the research. Yes. Okay. We're going to have to have you come back for a part two, (laughs) because I'm sitting here looking at the questions and our last two Questions of um, what are the exercise principles we should keep in mind and how to implement
3: strategies in EI? Fred, we did not get to this. <laughs> we got through no. question one, but, I, but this was good. I think it was important. Um, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So, what are your, Aaron,
0: we'll, we'll go with your closing thoughts. What are your closing thoughts about evidence based practice? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
2: There's so many, I can't, I can't, just ask, just, I think I have to be able to tell myself why I'm doing something. And I also like, I sometimes hate that I not, I'm not anxious, but that I know I have to do the right thing. And that thing that has evidence and the thing that's best for my family's. And I just kind of think of it in that way. Just make sure that you're doing all that you can and that it's, it's not some quick fix. It, it's a lot of effort to do all the research and ask all those questions and take the time to dig deep. So reaching out to people, even just if you have kind of, I feel like I've created this tribe of women that they take some of the work away from me because they help me also and they do their own research and that's
0: I think really awesome mm-hmm. okay um I have to the quest Allison you called it a quest earlier and that's the perfect description for it also like I love that that term in general because it's like super romantic it's like sexy speech pathology terminology right there but um Evidence-based practice is a quest. And I think that's a beautiful analogy. And pediatric feeding disorders. Y'all, I know we've talked about feeding matters. I know that um, uh, Ms. Jacqueline Peterson, the interim CEO of feeding matters, has been a guest with us. and But they have poured their hearts and souls of great minds in all disciplines into the pillars of that nonprofit organization. So I would highly recommend that you use them as part of your research base for your evidence-based triangle, because the whole company is based on pediatric feeding disorders, Asha has some on their website, but I mean, this yeah. entity has a, a grandiose version of that. Right. Um, and then volunteer and Allison, if you have not signed up to volunteer, I'm going to email you to miss Jennifer Lambert and we are like, gonna, we're going to lasso you in on this. Perfect.
3: This- I'm excited. Let's do it. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay.
0: All right. Well, so she's what is in charge of my project? Is she really Jennifer Lambert? Mm -hmm. I love that woman. She She just emailed me the other day. She's amazing. Okay. Yes. Okay. So what are what are your closing thoughts on evidence-based practice, Miss Allison?
3: Yeah, I, I agree with Aaron. Just figuring out why I'm doing something. I anytime I'm typing into my note or doing something, I want to have like a citation in my brain that I could reference if I needed to. Um, I actually received a subpoena this week to go to court this December and I've done feeding therapy, but I'm not anxious about it because I know every single thing I did with that child had a purpose. Um, and so I think that's really important that if you have to defend your notes in front of a court, can you do that? Do you feel confident in that? Do you have someone who could grill you on what you did and you you can stand up for, you know, your thought process and your clinical thinking, um, so I think that's just that critical thinking aspect that pediatric feeding and swallowing is not a cookbook. We don't have a recipe for each kid. Um, so just using your brain, which I hope that doesn't sound mean, but um, just taking in all the information and forming an, an informed opinion. Huh, this was great. Thank you for doing this. Okay. Now a couple of thoughts.
0: One, Allison. You just created a CEU course, so what is it? Where is it? How can people sign up to take a peek at it?
3: Yeah, so I um, created a course for assessment and treatment in the early early intervention population. Um, It's all evidence based. On every single slide, I put a citation of where I got the information from, um, so you don't have to do any guesswork. And I I just give it for programs who contact me. So if you're program is interested, or if y'all want to launch a feeding program, I would be happy to present via zoom at the moment. Um, so yeah, you can email me or find me on Instagram. If you, if you're interested in that, and I would be happy to, uh, mentor your team or mentor anyone that contacts me. I'm, um, I've had so many people along my journey, mentor me for free. And, um, So I I just want to give back in any way that I can. So yes, I love this. Thank you. And then Erin,
0: can y'all, can I let the bag out of the journal club yet? Or do I have to be quiet on the fabulous journal club support team? We'll, we'll wait on that one. We have to wait. Okay. Well, I will, I'll, I'll tease it then there. We're going to set up a, um, a nonprofit, um, support for a journal club to help um, fund individuals getting into um, registered dietitian evals and interdisciplinary needing,
2: um, needing financial support
0: for all
2: the things, all the
0: things. And it'll be um, a fabulous fun way to discuss great journal articles together. Um, and no money goes to us. All the money goes directly to the nonprofit to, um, help pay for kids. Um, but we will have the name of that and the logo here, I guess, within the next couple of days. <laughs> I'm impatient. I want to do good in the world. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So all the fun things are happening. Okay. So um, hold tight, Allison. I have to switch this over to questions really quick. Okay. Sounds good. Feeding Matters Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.